I invite you to turn with me, if you have a copy of the Bible, to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, that can be found starting on page 987. 987. Now, last time we left off in 1 Thessalonians, it's been probably about four weeks at this point, we reflected on Paul's words to the church in Thessalonica concerning the second advent or the second coming of Christ, what theologians sometimes refer to as the parousia as well. If you recall, the church in Thessalonica had a lot of questions about that future gospel event, much like maybe we do in our own day. But in addressing that topic, Paul was particularly concerned with allaying fears among the church that perhaps their loved ones who had already died would somehow miss out on resurrection life in the end. Paul addressed that anxious misunderstanding at the latter half of chapter 4 and assured the church that God does not abandon his own. But instead of moving on to a completely new topic in chapter 5, well, Paul continues to reflect on the second advent, the second coming of Christ, except now from a different angle. Our passage today, I think, is somewhat appropriate for the first day of a new year because it's about thinking rightly and preparing with vigilance for the future, although the future that Paul has in mind is not simply another year, but rather it's what he calls the day of the Lord. Now, I should also clarify, too, that the sermon title, this was brought to my attention beforehand, that the sermon title, Stay Awake, is not intended as a call because you had a late New Year's Eve to not fall asleep during the sermon, although that is true. It rather reflects the language of the passage, and we'll hear some of that as we dive into it right now in just a second. So with that said, hear now the word of the Lord. This is 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version, the ESV. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, well then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the nights or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Earlier, uh, earlier this week, I, I came across an interesting article and this article reflected at length on the appropriation or use of apocalyptic end-time kind of language from the Bible in popular culture over the years. Um, the author who wrote this article about 20 years ago observed first just how influential specifically language and imagery from the book of Revelation has been on popular culture, particularly in America over the years. And then second, he reflected more broadly on how the very word apocalypse, a word that conjures images of doomsday and destruction, 
has been applied over the years to a host of random and diverse issues. Uh, He observed that the word has been applied to issues as far-ranging as the health effects of living in proximity to electric power lines, to urban population growth, and even to alpine snowboarding. I have no idea how those two topics relate, but there you go. Uh, Some of you might also be aware of the so-called doomsday clock that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists developed at the beginning of the Cold War that, that claims to capture in a dramatic way just how close we are to the brink of apocalyptic doom, which is ominously designated as midnight on this clock. And in case you were wondering, we're about 100 seconds away from midnight right now. Hopefully I'll finish the sermon. Well, you see, in one respect, our world isn't unaware that we're vulnerable, even if some of those doomsday conceptions that are out there are applied solely for the sake of entertainment value. On the one hand, our neighbors as individuals might not think too much about their own personal mortality, but the world at large seems generally willing in all of these various media to reflect upon the end in some kind of respect. And yet, In the same article that I mentioned a moment ago, the author also observed this. He noted that despite the pervasity of apocalyptic doomsday language that's kind of baked into our culture at various levels, that God is rarely present in those apocalyptic conceptions. He writes this. He says, quote, this generation is not the first to perceive that it could be the last. The difference is this is the first generation that has perceived that the end could come without reference to God. Now, as we turn to the, our attention to the passage before us, you'll notice that Paul doesn't once in this passage use the word apocalypse. That's a word that's nowhere to be found in our text. And yet, Paul is very much concerned that we, the church, have an appropriate outlook, a right perspective on that final apocalyptic event in human history, which Paul labels here the day of the Lord. And we'll talk about what that is in just a moment and why Paul even broaches this subject to begin with and unpack his words in just a moment. But one of the chief concerns that hangs over our text, especially in view of our world's simultaneous awareness, but also profound ignorance of the end, is whether or not we have the same outlook that Paul does. Or perhaps to drill down even further, ask yourselves this, Am I more sensitive to the individual crises I face or the big challenges of the world, many of which are real, but all the while remaining spiritually ignorant and anesthetized to the day of the Lord that the clock is ticking towards? Well, these are some of the questions that our passage prompts us, I think, to reflect upon. And so as we come to the passage before us and study its various parts, our big orienting idea is this, stay awake for the coming day. Stay awake for the coming day. How exactly do we do that? Well, in summary, we need, in order to do that, first, an an accurate awareness of that day, second, a sober approach to that day, and then third, an objective assurance as we move towards that day. If you have one of the outlines in the back, that uh, outline can be found on on that sheet, but I'll repeat myself. A big idea is stay awake for the coming day, and we're going to study this in three parts. First, an accurate awareness second, a sober approach, and third, an objective assurance. So let's begin with an accurate awareness. Now, over the years, there have unfortunately been countless attempts by various individuals and even groups out there 
to somehow decode the Bible and figure out when the end will come. And I'm sure many of you can recall predictions like that from other people or groups that should have known better. Uh, in my studies this week, New, New Testament scholar Greg Beale pointed to an example um, in, in history a few years ago that I wasn't aware of, but he said that uh, he pointed to an event back in the early 90s in South Korea where a group of Christians was so convinced that Christ was coming again in October of 1992. Apparently, they had decoded the Bible, and they said that uh, their predictions were accurate and Jesus was going to come October 1992. But then, of course, when those predictions went unfulfilled, some were so distraught that they ended up committing suicide. Sadly, many people who have over the years been led astray and, and indulged in that type of curiosity without, with, with groundless and wrong-headed speculation about that day have been led to drastic results like that. Well, when our text opens, we come to find that the church in Thessalonica was apparently curious about something similar. They had been asking questions, it seems, about what Paul says were the times and seasons, the times and seasons. Now, whether they, were, um, whether they were asking or probing for a concrete date about when the end would come and where they were on that timeline, or they were asking more general questions about the end, it's not clear. But what may have prompted some of those questions that they had about the times and seasons was a pressing anxiety among the church about the end, and specifically prevailing concerns about whether those Christians who would be alive at Christ's second coming would be able to make it through that day somehow unscathed, and how best to prepare for that day now so that they and all of God's people, whether dead or alive, would be able to make it through that terrible day. In short, they were nervous about whether that inevitable future would be to their disadvantage. Now, Paul's going to say more about these issues as the passage unfolds, but what's noteworthy, at least initially, is that Paul doesn't indulge in any of those curious speculations about the end that, that, that maybe have come up in the history of the church, that maybe some of the things that we're familiar with in our own world. Now, that might have been what the church wanted Paul to do, you know, give us some clues about when the end will come. But just as Jesus said in Matthew 24, quote, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only, so too Paul doesn't speculate about what the Bible doesn't tell us. Instead, he reminds the church of what they already know to be true about the times and seasons from the Scriptures. He roots them in God's Word and what God has revealed rather than stoking curiosity about what God has not revealed. But that, of course, raises the question, what then has God revealed about the end? Well, when we turn to verse 2, notice that Paul colors the second advent, the second coming of Christ, which he's been talking about up until this point at the end of chapter 4, with a particular phrase. In verse 2, he labels the second coming of Christ the, quote, day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, this is a phrase that shows up all over the place. When the prophets look to the future in their day, they often talk about the so-called day of the Lord as a day when God will bring both judgment upon his enemies and salvation for his people, though the emphasis often lies on that judgment aspect of the day of the Lord. Uh, to give just one example of this, about 800 years before Paul writes what he writes in our text to the church in Thessalonica, uh, the prophet Amos wrote to a people who in his own day had presumed upon the Lord's favor, who, who thought judgment would be doled out on other people, 
But in their sin, they needed to wake up to the fact that the future would not be to their advantage either unless and until they repent of their sins. The prophet Amos declared to Israel at that time in Amos 5, 18 through 20, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? This ultimate day of the Lord to which the Old Testament prophets like Amos often look forward to, the day which Paul looks forward to in, in our text, and a day which we ultimately still await, is a day, Paul continues to tell us, that will come like a thief in the night. Just as thieves don't announce when they're coming to take your stuff, presumably they come when their victims are most vulnerable and unaware in the dead of the night, so too this day of the Lord, although we as the people of God should expect that it's inevitably going to come, will come on a day that we cannot predict nor chart on any kind of timeline. And if we're unprepared for it, if we're found sleeping, Paul indicates, well, it'll be a day of terrifying distress and peril. And unfortunately, Paul tells us that, that when that day dawns, there will be plenty of people who are called terribly unprepared for it. Paul, again, Paul writes in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction. Just as the day of the Lord was something the prophets warned about repeatedly in the Old Testament scriptures, so too they also frequently warned God's people against saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, the prophets often warn God's people against false assurance, namely of thinking that things are better off than they actually are, of presuming upon God's promises and patience while brazenly indulging in all manner of sin and idolatry, numb towards godliness and holiness. And this is something that Paul's readers, in the context of the Roman Empire, needed to be warned about too. You see, the Roman Empire in which Paul and his readers lived in the first century, mid-first century AD, often prized themselves on the so-called Pax Romana, or that translated to Roman peace, which promised to its citizens safety and prosperity and stability. As long as you lived in the Roman Empire within its boundaries and borders, the empire promised that nothing will touch you. There was this myth of invulnerability that Rome advanced and which it called its citizens to believe in and trust in. And yet Paul warns that those claims of peace and security, whether they're bred from Rome or any other source, will ultimately lead you to a false sense of security and lead us to be deaf to the warnings of the day of the Lord and that the day of the Lord is on its way and that no source of protection outside of union with Christ will be able to shield someone from that terrible day when it eventually dawns. You know, there often, something, there, there, there often seems to be something of a, a predictable trend, I think, out there whenever some sort of disaster in our world unfolds. Some of you may remember that back in the um, summer of 2021, about a year and a half ago, there was a 12-story condo in South Florida that suddenly collapsed, and it, it tragically took the lives of 98 people. And yet in the aftermath of that disaster, reports came out that there were apparently numerous warning signs that either weren't heated or they weren't heated in time in the years and months and days leading up to that condo's collapse. And so too, Back in 2018, when a dam suddenly gave way in Laos, claiming the lives of 27 people. 
It was reported in the aftermath that there were structural concerns in the days and weeks leading to its collapse, warnings that were issued, but not everyone who should have been warned was warned, and many continued living unaware that a deluge of water was about to crash through their villages downstream. You see, an example after example, when disaster strikes and people are tragically called off guard, there are often in retrospects warnings of some kind that weren't heeded in the way that they probably should have been. But when it comes to the greatest cosmic turning disruption in the history of the world, this day of the Lord, Paul warns us now so that we're not, unlike so many of our unbelieving neighbors, lulled into a false sense of security by false promises of invulnerability all around us. But that, of course, begs the question, where have we allowed promises of peace and security in our world numb us? spiritually speaking, in some way towards God? And have you bought into some of those claims of peace and security even as you let sin reign in your life without repentance? You see, at one level, Paul's warnings about the coming day of the Lord should prompt perhaps some of you to evaluate your relationship with the Lord at an ultimate level and ask whether I should be at peace in this world when I might not be at peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. For some of you, this might be a call to come to terms with your own spiritual drowsiness. But then for the rest of us, even if you really do find peace and security in the Lord in that ultimate sense, are there still areas of life where you functionally rest far too comfortably in promises of peace and security out there rather than the security of being united to faith in Christ here. And at the end of the day, do you care more about securing your financial or vocational prosperity, which isn't, of course, in itself bad, but rather than tending to the spiritual needs that you have in view of this coming day of the Lord? These are some questions our passage prompts. You know, John Calvin notes that, that a spirit of carelessness in view of the coming day of the Lord, is often produced when we consider things like future judgment to be far into the future, remote, not immediately present before our eyes. And yet, don't ignore Paul's warning that this day is coming. It might not come in our lifetimes. Ultimately, we don't know, and that's part of Paul's point. But it will come. And even if it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, understand that being lulled into a false sense of security, assuming we are at peace with God when we're just not, will still result in peril when we take our final breath. Now, in the first three verses of our passage, Paul reminds us of this second coming of Christ from the Scriptures, this so-called day of the Lord, so that we wouldn't think that God's delay means that God is absent in the world, nor that God won't one day come and vindicate His people, nor that sin will be able to run amok forever because it won't. But if this day is coming, and it's going to come suddenly, if it's not like an exam with a fixed date that we can study for and pencil into our schedules, well then how in the world do we live in preparation and anticipation of that sudden and inevitable day when it comes? Well, this is where Paul turns next in verses 4 through 8 of our passage when he begins to instruct us in what a sober approach in our own discipleship looks like in anticipation of that coming day. So this leads to our second point, second, a sober approach. 
And notice that as we begin to explore, just surveying the language that we find here in verses 4 through 8, you may notice that Paul invokes a ton of different metaphors, contrasting metaphors in these verses. Just to highlight the, the metaphors he uses, he contrasts light with darkness and day with night and wakefulness with sleep and sobriety with drunkenness. And yet for all of the different word pictures that we could get lost in in this passage, ultimately they all work together to highlight the issue of allegiances or loyalties. And they prompt the question, and a question that really hangs over the whole passage, to whom do you belong? And to what kingdom do you call home? You see, throughout the New Testament, this present age is frequently portrayed as an age of darkness. And those who make their home in this age, spiritually speaking, are likewise characterized in so many ways by darkness and blindness. Let me give you a few examples of this. Paul, um, elsewhere in Ephesians 6.12, he talks about, quote, the cosmic powers that reign over this present darkness. And the Apostle John in 1 John 5, uh, he, he talks about how this age, this world, lies in the power of the evil one. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul mentions how in the case of the, our unbelieving neighbors who belong to that present age of darkness, quote, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then Paul later in Romans 13, 12, he pleads with believers, with you and I, to, quote, cast off the works of darkness and to put on instead the armor of light. See, according to the Bible, to belong to this age, this present world, is to be in a state of spiritual dullness and deadness in relation to the things of God. And as it relates to our passage, completely unaware of how the wheels of history are turning and this day that will inevitably dawn. And yet, in contrast to the darkness and drunkenness and sleepiness that characterizes that group, a group that's allied itself with the ruler of this world, Paul then sketches another group in the midst of this, a group that's marked by light and ultimately by their allegiance to the Lord. You see, throughout the Scriptures, the Lord is frequently described by this same metaphor of day or light. John elsewhere in 1 John 1, 5 writes, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. And for those who belong to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul can declare, quote, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Likewise, light characterizes the polar opposite of this kingdom of darkness. For God's people, Paul can say in Colossians 1, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And although this present age is an age of darkness, this kingdom of light that Paul likewise highlights is a kingdom, friends, that's already broken into this world. And at the end of the age, when the so-called day of the Lord dawns, well, the Scriptures tell us that the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of the Lord and His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. You see, at the end of the age, there will only be a kingdom of light. Now, ultimately, Paul, in our passage, sketches these two approaches, these two ultimate allegiances with all of these various contrasting metaphors, not for the purpose of instilling fear, but in order to assure us, as God's people, 
that the events of the day of the Lord, when the kingdom of this world is invaded and the rulers of this world are inevitably, in the language of Revelation, cast into the lake of fire, it will not be a day that works to our disadvantage or destruction. Because if you belong now to the God of light, the day of the Lord will be for us a homecoming. Friends, if you belong to that kingdom, that kingdom of light, there's no need to fret about how all the pieces in our world are going to fall into place. No need to worry when things seem like they're working entirely for our disadvantage, because at the end of that day of the Lord, far from being robbed of life, that will be the beginning of resurrection life that Paul sketched earlier for us in chapter 4. And yet, though Paul wants his readers, he wants you and I to be assured, to be anchored in who we are and where we belong. He wants to extinguish any unnecessary anxiety that we might carry about that final day when it dawns. Well, he also wants us to live our lives right now in a way that reflects who we are as citizens of that heavenly kingdom of light. And so how exactly do we do that? How do we live now in light of that citizenship and in light of where we ultimately belong? Well, in verses 6 through 8, Paul falls back upon some of these same metaphors that he just used, and he urges us very simply, stay awake. Stay awake and be sober. In other words, don't let your guard down. Don't minimize your own vulnerabilities and don't fall into the trap that God's people so frequently did in the Old Testament the problem of syncretism, of thinking that you can have a little bit of the kingdom of darkness while still being a loyal citizen of the kingdom of light. As Paul puts it rhetorically elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 6.14, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? The answer is none, because in God's economy, the two cannot mix. As Paul continues into verse 8, he then overlays these contrasts with yet another metaphor. He, he brings in this metaphor of armor, of being donned with this armor of God. Again, he writes in verse 8, but since we belong to the day, that's where our identity is in Christ, let us live that way. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, Paul uses armor metaphors like this elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the Christian life. Perhaps the most notable of these is Ephesians 6. It's a much lengthier passage, typically referred to as the armor of God passage. But ultimately, this language that Paul calls upon is language that echoes how God himself is described in Isaiah 59. You see, in that text, the prophet Isaiah, some 800 years before this, looks forward to the same event that Paul looks forward to, this day of the Lord. And on that day, the prophet Isaiah, well, he sees in Isaiah 59 that God puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head and garments of vengeance for his clothing and zeal as a cloak. Now, in calling upon us as the people of God to don in our own day, in our own context, similar armor, Paul's not telling us that, that, that we can act somehow like God, only God can bring about his kingdom, but he is calling us to conform ourselves to the one we claim to know and love. You know, I often like to wear, when I'm not in a suit that is, I like to wear a baseball cap. If you see me around casually, I'll often have a baseball cap on, 
And sometimes as a family, it doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes as a family, if we're preparing to go somewhere and I put my, my hat on, my son will run to his room and he'll grab his baseball cap too. And uh, he'll make sure to remind me that he's decided to wear his baseball cap so that he looks like me. You know, sometimes, I know we're adorable, uh, sometimes he likes to mirror his dad, and something similar could be said in this passage too. In putting on this armor, we're being called to conform our thinking, our approach to the world, and especially our outlook on the future according to God's revealed will in His Word. We're called specifically to be a people who are protected and marked by faith and love and hope that often repeated triad that orients God's people Godward and sets them apart as a unique and peculiar people throughout the Scriptures. And so if you confess Christ, if you claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of light, are you, spiritually speaking, sober and awake and donned with the armor of faith, hope, and love? Or instead, is your life more marked by spiritual apathy you know, I'm reminded by something that, that C.S. Lewis wrote in, you know, the famous Screwtape Letters, which if you're unfamiliar with it, is a book of, uh, of fiction, a series of fictional letters that are voiced from the perspective of one senior demon, Screwtape, to his junior demon, Wormwood. And one of the letters, Lewis puts his finger on this issue of apathy, when in passing, he has Screwtape write this. Screwtape writes, some ages, some generations are lukewarm and complacent, and then it is our business to soothe them yet faster asleep. Now, on the one hand, to be awake and sober does not require, as Greg Beale notes, that we must, quote, sit around every moment of our lives with the Bible in our hands, looking out the window and waiting for him to come at any time. Beale continues, that would paralyze us, just as there is an ordinary insane way to be ready for thieves, so there is a reasonable way to be ever ready for Jesus' coming, end quote. You see, to live sober and awake in a sane way is to have very simply word and sacrament as a regular part of our diet, week by week, nourishing us. To live sober and awake in a sane way is to be aware and ever-present of the sin that we contribute, and rather than getting so angry at the world all the time, or at those out there, or those in here at the church, to make prayer and repentance and reconciliation a regular part, a regular rhythm of our spiritual lives. You know, whatever the particular application in this situation or that, if you are a child of the day, if you claim to be a citizen of the kingdom of the light, if, if the Lord has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, well, friends, stay awake, stay sober, and when you find yourself lukewarm towards Christ or to His people, come back to this passage and recognize that there is a day coming and it would be a terrible thing to, as Lewis puts it again, be soothed yet faster asleep in your apathy. Now, Paul wants us to chart a sober approach as we live according to this heavenly citizenship that he charts for us. But lest we think that our final destiny, our final security is somehow hanging in the balance or is somehow up to us, well, notice that when Paul closes out this passage, he provides for us what we'll call an objective assurance, an objective assurance. And this leads to our final point. You see, at the end of the day, the roots of our assurance and the source of our peace, 
does not lie and cannot lie in anything we've done, but it lies squarely in what the Lord has done for us. And in verses 9 through 11, Paul roots our assurance in two things. First, he roots our assurance in what God has done in eternity past, and then second, what God did in the unfolding of history at the cross. So notice that the first way in which Paul roots us as children of light is by reminding us in our passage that God has not destined us in Christ for wrath. Now, of course, in saying that, Paul doesn't mean that wrath won't come. It will. The whole passage has been about that. But for us, for those who look to Christ in faith, who look to Christ's perfections and claim those perfections for ourselves, that's not our destiny. And in that one word, destiny, Paul roots our assurance in what God has decreed or destined for us from eternity past. Understand that if you're looking to faith in Christ right now, it's because for one thing, the Spirit has given you new life. He's transformed your once heart of stone, turned it into a heart of flesh. But to press even further on that, it's because God ordained your salvation, not because of any foreseen faith in you, not because he saw what a lovely person you would someday become in the future, but purely out of his grace. This is how Paul puts it elsewhere in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, when he tells us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Friends, our assurance that we will stand on the day of the Lord is primarily fundamentally anchored in the unchangeable decree of God from eternity past, a God who does not change his mind and a God who will see to our perseverance in all the stuff thrown our way over the course of life to ensure that we will persevere to the end. If you're looking to faith in Christ right now, if you've taken up residence in the kingdom of light, then brothers and sisters, take heart because the God of the universe has decreed it long before our sun began to burn. And this is why John Calvin can write this, quote, there cannot be a better assurance of salvation gathered than from this decree of God. But if that's the first way in which Paul anchors us, in view of this coming day of the Lord. Well, the second way he anchors us lies in what God has done for us in the unfolding of redemptive history at the cross. Notice at the end of verse 9 and then into verse 10, Paul summarizes for us the essence of what Christ did for us in the fullness of time in just a few words. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ died for us. Understand that at the cross, the judgment that was due for us because of our sin, judgment that sadly our unbelieving friends and neighbors will face when that day of the Lord dawns, that judgment has already broken into human history for us at the cross. Our judgment was, as Greg Beale suggests, quote, pushed back to the cross, inaugurated there in Christ on behalf of those for whom he has died. And in that sense, friends, our day of the Lord has already come and gone. Our day of the Lord happened in a very real sense 2,000 years ago at the cross. 
And in that lies the second great reason we can be assured of our destiny when the final day of the Lord dawns. And why in the end we have nothing to fear, no reason to be paralyzed, whether that day is tomorrow or another 2,000 years. If you identify through faith with Christ, if you love Christ, it's because you were first loved and in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ our Lord died for you. Friends, there's so much about the future that we don't know. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. We're not even promised it. We can do everything within our power to control our own little affairs and still see them crumble before our eyes. But even though so much remains unknown and outside of our control, we have real promises that Paul encourages us here and elsewhere to rest in. For one thing, we have not been abandoned by God, and therefore our future is not a future of darkness and gloom. And for another thing, whether we see the day of the Lord dawn from earth or from heaven, we carry hope that on the other side of that day of the Lord, we won't live in some kind of dystopian post-apocalyptic future that Hollywood often portrays, but rather we'll reside in a new Eden, in the paradise of God, where we see by sight what we only now see by faith. Yes, Paul calls us to be vigilant now, spiritually sensitive to our own sin and to the sin out there, but he also reminds us that our future inheritance does not depend upon you and me. It depends squarely upon the God who is faithful to His people. So, as we prepare to close and remind ourselves through the Lord's Supper of that feast that great day of the Lord will give way to for God's people. Let me leave us with this, and really I'm just echoing here the final exhortation of our passage, where Paul encourages us, paraphrasing here, that as a secured people, comfort each other in that same security. Now, it's somewhat curious why Paul ends where he does in verse 11, but by calling us to encourage each other and build each other up, because that doesn't really seem to connect um, all that much with what he just said. And yet recognize that in any church, in any church family, in any congregation, ours included, there will always be people who, on the one hand, need to wake up and recognize that sin is serious and that there's a day coming when we don't want to be found asleep. But then on the other hand, every church congregation also has brothers and sisters who are deeply anxious about the future or those who are in great despair right now, that they can't even see the hope that lies in the future. And so our task then is to simply be in each other's lives, calling each other to wake up when necessary, and also encouraging each other in the same promises that our passage holds out for each of us. The question then is, what are the ways in which you are invested in the spiritual well-being of those in our church family? Friends, understand the Lord has given us a body in part to live out this command. And so as a secured people, get into each other's lives and comfort each other in the same security that we have, namely that the kingdom of light will prevail and the kingdom of darkness will not. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these words. Lord, we confess that often our focus is on the here and now. It's on the day-to-day -day anxieties that we face in life, and it's on making sure that, 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 that our today is secured. And Lord, I pray that we, would have, that we would be mindful about the future, namely this future day of the Lord, that you would help us in light of it to be a, a more hopeful people, 
but also a more vigilant people too, more vigilant about our own spiritual well-being, more vested in the spiritual well-being of those you've called into our body to love and, and, to, and to tend to. Lord, in all things, would you remind us that for your people, for those who cling in faith to Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord, that this is a day that will ultimately give way to paradise, to a new heavens and new earth where we will dwell in eternal bliss with you, with resurrected bodies forever and ever. Would you remind us of these truths, orient our minds and hearts rightly, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.